Photography Online, the podcast. Coming up in the next 60 minutes, we see who's claiming to be the biggest mirrorless camera brand, why a multi-million dollar TV advert was slammed for being AI, and the land where you can walk anywhere as long as you can get to it. We then regale a couple of workshop horror stories, not ours of course, and ask, should the photography workshop industry be regulated? We then look at a few new products to the market and ask, does the world really need them? It's all coming up, so make yourself comfortable and settle in. And now, please welcome your hosts for this episode of The Photography Online Podcast. A man who is so afraid of missing sunrise, he sleeps with his boots on. It's Nick Hansen. Yep, they're still laced up. And a man who spends so much time in the darkroom, even his future is no longer bright. It's Marcus McAdam. Hey, who turned the lights on? And here to keep them both in check, a woman I'm told needs no introduction. So please put your hands together for the one, the only, the ever-present, some might say the queen of photography, it's Ruth Taylor. There's nothing quite like a big intro to get you going. Welcome back to our new podcast this month. We've got Marcus back in the studio, ready to inspire and or offend, as is his want. Marcus, nice to see you again. I think it will more likely be the latter. I think you're very right. We're going to get into that a little bit later on. Nick is back here. He hasn't done anything to offend quite yet, but Nick, good to see you. Thank you, Ruth. Good to be here. This is my first time, so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, it's going to be good. We had Harry for the first time last month. He didn't do too badly. We've had lots of good feedback on on Harry's words of wisdom. Marcus, we've had uh, <laughs> we have had some feedback, but like I said, we're gonna we're gonna hold that I think for a little bit further into the show. It's so great to have people tuning in as well from all over. We've had some of the usual places that we expect, same places that we reach with the main show, the US, Canada, kind of the English speaking countries, the UK, of course. We've also had some rather random far-flung places, including we were looking at this Guam. I think we had seven people, did we say, Marcus, who were tuned in from Guam last month. It says there's been seven listens. So, I mean, it could be the same person listening on seven different devices, I I suppose. But um, we'll go with seven people because it makes us feel better. It does make us feel better. If you are one of the seven who were listening last month from Guam or other places we've had, uh, who did we St. Lucia, Vietnam, actually, people listening from there as well. It's just interesting to us. So if that's one of you guys, feel free to get in touch um, and let us know. But anyway, we're going to crack on with our March Photography Online podcast. Starting off with In the News, we've got quite a few really interesting articles uh, this month that we have found between us. And story one, Nick, what have you found? Yeah, this is from the Canon US website. It says basically Canon US is proud to announce they have solidified the number one mirrorless camera brand position for a third year in a row in 2023. Now, this is the US only. Um, but it's a big claim. Um, Marcus, what do you think on this? I mean, do you think it's credible? Well, all I know is that when I used to work in radio, we used to get these official figures that were done independently by a company called Rajar. And the, the same radio stations all used to get the same figures. And it was amazing uh, the ability of each radio station to pull out the the, the positives for, for themselves out of the same set of figures. So there was at least three or four radio stations that claimed to be number one because they would just look at different demographics. So one radio station would be number one for 24 to you know the 35-year-olds, for example, and they'd miss that bit out and they would just say, we've been rated number one. So I'm sure there's probably a lot of that going on here because I, I've heard that Sony are also claiming the number one spot as well. So 
they probably all looked at these figures, uh, which have, have they been done independently, by the way, these figures? Do you know where they've come from? Yeah, the source on the, um, the Canon website says Circana Retail Tracking Service. Okay, so it's not their own figures, because that obviously no. if it was their own research, then you can kind of pretty much ignore it. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's independent, and, um, and they'll all be just picking out the, the best bits for themselves. So I wouldn't read too much into it, but it's just, uh, it's just some friendly promotional rivalry, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... Uh, Canon do have more APS-C sensor-sized cameras, so they have the R7, the 10, and the 50. So you know, if it is, you know, this is coming from a retail tracking service, they probably have sold more cameras because they have more APS-C sensor-sized cameras. You know, for the enthusiast or beginner market. All I know is that I've read that the Sony A7R4 is the best-selling mirrorless camera of all time. Um, I don't. I don't know whether that's global or whether that's just in in the US, but you know, sold more than any other camera you know, reputedly. All right. Well, moving on to our next story, uh, Mark. Is this one that you found? We've talked a lot about AI. What's this particular one? Yeah. Well, this was just something that popped up, and I I, I almost dismissed it, but um, then I, I kind of started reading it, and I kind of got hooked and, and pulled into it. But um, the Super Bowl was shown recently in the US, and. I mean, in the rest of the world, it's kind of a non-event, but in the US, it's um, pretty much everything comes to a halt, really, and it's the uh, it's probably the biggest sporting event of the year. Um, and the commercials that are shown during the Super Bowl uh, are probably the most expensive commercials anywhere in the world. And there was a particular commercial which um, was all about washing feet. It had religious undertones. We're not going to go into that. But basically, it was just, uh, I think it was 60 seconds, and it was just a montage of all these photos of people washing other people's feet. And after it had gone out, this uh, other website had claimed that it was the most appalling and offensive advert ever to be shown during the Super Bowl because it was AI. But the photographer who was responsible for all the photos has then hit back and, and shown video of her, because it was a, a woman photographer, uh, shooting all these uh, you know, very highly polished photos. And when you look at the photos, they are, I mean, they're certainly not natural because they've been processed to within an inch of their lives, but they kind of suit being highly processed. I think you were looking at these the other day as well, weren't you, Nick? I was, yes. And like you say, you know, they do... I mean, I guess if people do look at them when they look at them for the first time, like I think there's a lot is happening with AI photos. Is they, they, you know, they can look very AI because of the processing style. Yeah, absolutely, and and it would be easy to look at them and go, oh, that's AI. But that's the problem these days because if you put a lot of effort into shooting an amazing photo, or you spend a lot of time editing a photo to make it amazing. Uh, yeah, then you're instantly accused of it being AI. I think that happened to you recently, didn't it, Nick? It did, yeah. One of my photos from the Kerrang posted it on uh, X and the comment was, this is so good, it could almost be AI. <laughs> now, I didn't know whether to be offended by that or not. I would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if, the, if the image was created in AI and someone said, you know, that could almost look like a real photo, that would be better. You know, because AI still has a long way to come. Yeah, I mean, I, I was offended, but it was like, you know, it took me by shock. <laughs> yeah, no, pick, picking the bones out of that, Nick. Basically, the, the worst photographer in the world at the moment is AI, okay? Yeah. And someone's basically said that you're almost as good as AI. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I would take that with slight offence. But it's just it's just sad sign of the times, I think, that 
um, it, you know, the more effort you put into a photo, the more you're going to be accused of it not being authentic. Um, and you know, I, I'm someone who, you know, personally, I, I'm not suggesting that everybody keeps their photos perfectly authentic because there's nothing wrong with doing whatever you want to do to your photos. But um, my own style of photography is what the camera sees is what the viewer's going to get. I don't change anything. And so I keep my photos as genuine as possible. But because of that, I put a lot of work into the planning and the execution. Um, so I make sure that, you know, the light is ideal and everything. And, you know, for a long time now, I've had people look at my photos and go, oh, wow, that's amazing. But what did it really look like? And you go, well, like that, that's, that's it. That, you, what you're seeing yeah. Yeah. Is, is the scene naturally. And then when you tell them that, you can see that their level of appreciation goes up a notch because they're like, oh, wow, well, it, so it was really like that. And you go, yeah. <laughs> and it's just a real sad sign of the times. But anyway, if, if you want to see the, the, the photos, because they are worth looking at, then just Google Jesus Super Bowl ad and um, and it will come up. We'll put a link as well. We'll stick a link into the show notes and you can hop on there and look. They are, they're really good photographs. You're right. But it's the, it's the AI thing. You think uh, no effort went into that. But actually looking at the setup, the video setup from behind the scenes, a huge amount of effort actually went into those. And speaking of effort going into photos, there's some spooming spectacular um, images that have popped up recently, Nick, in the Underwater Awards. You've looked at this, haven't you? Yeah, as you say, it's the Underwater Photographer of the year 2024 and i mean the winning photo excuse me by alex dawson is absolutely amazing i mean before i get to that if you look at some of the other um, photographs which were in the this is on the uh, bbc website you know they're just normal photographs of fish um, crustaceans etc you know which are just a normal photo but when you go to the winning photograph it is it's absolutely amazing i mean it's called whale bones well this is what they've said whale bones uh, beats more than 6500 photographs from around the world um, and it was photographed in the toughest conditions as a breath hold diver descends below the greenland ice sheet to bear witness to the carcasses so you've got these various carcasses of whales and um yeah this free diver i think that's what you call it or breath hold diver is in the photograph and it just looks like an like an alien landscape you know all these blue tones i mean it actually took me a while to actually see the diver because of the blue tones from the ice above obviously being reflected into the into the um the, the seabed below and you can see like there's a triangular shape of light above which is where they, i guess they've broken the ice to dive in it's just a phenomenal photo. It was actually on the news, as in the television news yesterday. So um, they were showing some video of, of how it was done. Um, and, and the diver is actually a model. So okay. um, that, that the, the diver was there to be part of the photo. Uh, but it's, it's well worth going to check that out because it is a, a phenomenal photo. But the, uh, without wanting to sound like I'm being a complete perfectionist here, Nick, um, have you got the photo in front of you at the moment? I do, yes. Okay. Would you have just zoomed in a little bit? Uh... There's like 10% too much around every single edge, and I just want to grab the, the zoom and just twist it a little bit. I know it's probably shot on a prime lens, but in which case, just swim a little bit closer, you know? <laughs> I, I don't know. I would maybe argue that giving more space, because you've got like the main carcass, the whale carcass, which is the bigger one and closer to the, the front of the frame, I see it as just giving space around it, you know, to show the area under the water. 
but you know horses for courses marcus well absolutely i mean that's the beauty of composition there's there's no right and wrong it's just one opinion versus another opinion you know when it comes to things like exposure there is a right and wrong because something if it's overexposed you can't argue otherwise um, but with composition it's just look this is what i think is good and someone else will disagree and that's you know that's what keeps photography so interesting exactly and I mean, this talking of exposure, I mean, this is, in my opinion, is perfectly exposed, you know, which I don't know how hard it is to do in an underwater environment. Well, the camera probably did it all. He had, he had, it, on, <laughs> he had it on P mode, didn't he? <laughs> P for professional. P for perfection, Marcus. Um, one of our last stories, the next, another one that you've actually found, this is a bit more UK related, I would say, uh, all around our, our coveted right to roam, which is one thing in Scotland is something a little bit different in England. What's what's making the news just now? Yeah, obviously in Scotland, well not obviously, but in Scotland we have this right to roam, which pretty much we can walk without getting into real deep details we can almost walk and camp anywhere we like but this doesn't really exist in the same way in Ireland, uh, England and Wales so on the BBC website here the kind of the main subheading is walkers are being shut out of 2,500 landscapes and beauty spots where there is a right to roam but no legal right to access them Uh, and it says here uh, researchers have found 2,700 hectares surrounded by private land excuse me with no public right of way so we've got these designated areas of right to roam but you can't access them unless you want to you know go on private property to get to them yes yeah, so you've got a trespass yeah. to, to get to the right to roam area basically yeah. yeah yeah i mean it's one of those things that when you live here in scotland uh you tend to take it for granted that you can just hop over a fence climb over a gate do whatever you want to do go wherever you want to go and no one has a legal right to to stop you um and then i mean when you go abroad it's easier to remember because obviously you're in a foreign environment and you know that the rules are changing but if you drive down the road from Scotland to England, it doesn't feel like you've actually gone to another country, but yet the rules all change. And you, so all of a sudden, you can't jump over a fence and start walking across a farmer's field um, because you're trespassing. And it's, it's often difficult to remember that these uh, you know, laws are very different in, uh, in the various nations of the, of the UK. But it's something that um, when we get overseas you know photographers coming to sky mostly but anywhere in scotland uh it's something that always amazes them when they kind of following us as a guides and you start climbing over and they go hang on a minute aren't we trespassing and you have to explain to them no we we can do whatever we want and it's it's such a great rule um because you know it's always been here and we, we just take it for granted it's um it's just a shame that it's not more kind of widespread. But it's a, yeah, like you say, that story is um, yeah they're they're trying to make it more widespread, but they're running into problems because you can't actually get to the areas where you've got right to roam because um, they're private. Yeah, I mean, even outside of this, with public footpaths and rights away in England, I mean, I found a lot of the time that even like farmers will block that right of way. You know, there might be in a stile going over a fence, but they've actually let the hedge, you know, grow over it. So it's to try and stop people from getting onto that public footpath. Yeah. No, well, I, mean, I, I can understand it from a, from a landowner's point of view. You're not going to want people traipsing across your, your, your land, full stop. Um, but from a, uh, you know, from a hiker's or a photographer's point of view, it's great to have access to anywhere you want to go. So the, you know, there's, there's two sides of the, of the debate there. But um, 
the debate falls in the photographer's favour at the moment, so let's not upset it. Well, moving on to our final story that we found in the news this month. Final couple of stories, actually. These are intrinsically linked, and uh, this also linked to a story we did, I think, on our first podcast, because, yeah, Marcus was here and, again, um, offended a few people. But this is all to do with selfies. There's been a couple of different stories in the news in the past few days. Marcus, what have you found? Yeah, well... Um as I was searching for content for this section of the show, um, I came across a story uh, just last week of a man in India who had climbed into an, a lion enclosure in a zoo uh, because he wanted to have a selfie with the lion in the background. And surprise, surprise, the lion killed him. Now, we tried to warn you a couple of months ago. We tried to warn you. You didn't listen. And now look what's happened. <laughs> So there we go. And um, yeah, there was another selfie-related story as well. And that is that apparently people taking selfies in art museums are causing damage to the exhibition. And I was thinking, well, how, how can that happen? And I was, initially, I was thinking it was to do with the flash, you know, if they were taking selfies and, the, and they had the flash on. But it's far more low-tech than that. Basically, people are turning around with their backs to the statue's paintings, whatever they are, and they're looking at their phone and they're trying to position themselves accordingly to the background and they're just bumping into stuff because they're walking backwards, they're not looking where they're going and they're knocking over priceless artefacts and bumping into you know, canvases and um, basically just stop being stupid, everybody. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like... I mean, why? Why do they need to do this? You know, well, it's just a narcissistic <laughs> environment that we live in now. Everyone wants to. I mean, why would you want to have a photo of yourself in a in a museum? Exactly. Do you understand it, Ruth? I I don't agree with it, but I understand wanting to document that you are, you know, in the Louvre, and here's the Mona Lisa behind me, or here's is you know the statue of David. Where I understand that, but you know the way they're going about it is. But. But why not just take a picture of the Mona Lisa? Why do you have to be in yeah. it? That's no, the, that's the well, thing I don't understand. It's Instagram, isn't it? Social media. Here am I with this famous thing and look how cool I am. That's, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, but if you're in it, you're probably in the way. <laughs> So you're getting in the way of your own photo. <laughs> yes, I mean you could, you, yeah, you could delve right into the, the selfie-related psychology, but there's a, there's probably a lot more to be talked about. I'm sure there'll be more stories appearing over the next month. We should probably just make a, a mini feature on selfie-related stories in the news. But that's most of the uh, news stories that we found this month. So as I say, more next time. But we're going to move on to our next feature, which is the big question. It's a question, and it's big. Yeah, we like the big question. The big question this month, should the photography workshop industry be regulated? Now, I threw this up on our socials uh, about a week ago just to get some feedback from, from the people, from the listeners, to see what you thought. Uh, did have quite a lot of feedback on that. Some of them basically mocking the question, saying, what on earth are you talking about? Which is a good sign, it's a good start. Um, and I think general consensus was they could be regulated if you're maybe going to get some sort of qualification from it. But otherwise, why are you bothering? There's some interesting feedback on there if you haven't seen it check out our facebook and instagram posts uh, and have a wee read through feel free to add to it but marcus and nick this is the big question for the month so who wants to go first well i, I can explain why we're doing it and that is because we obviously run workshops ourselves and photo holidays when we get customers on workshops and you're walking to location obviously you're in conversation with them um, and they often come up with stories about previous workshops that they've been on 
And some of the horror stories that we hear, I, I mean, you couldn't make them up. The problem is, is anybody can start running photography workshops. You don't need to know anything about photography. You don't need to know anything about the location. You don't need to do any health and safety checks. Uh, you don't have to have insurance. The list just goes on and on and on. And sooner or later, someone's going to you know, get killed. I mean, people have got killed on, on workshops before. But I'm guessing that there's just been no you know, legal or liable claims that have forced the industry to change its ways. But, um, you know, Nick, you've got a, a couple of cracking stories that you've told me in the past about workshops. I mean, I think you should start with the one where you were in the pub um, near Tataliska Bay with, with a group of people and, and met another workshop leader there. Yeah, so there was another group of people in there. And I just kind of guess, you know, you, know, you kind of get a feel for when there's other photographers around, not just because they've got the cameras over the next or anything but you kind of can tell a group of photographers and I actually got chatting to the main guy turns out yeah he was a photography guide and we just had a good chat but obviously found out that both were then heading to Talisco Beach after this so as we were leaving this guy was just ahead of us and he must have said to his customer like quick quick get in the car and he just started it was almost like you could hear the tires screeching as he pulled away in the van and we're, we're, got on, we're on the single track road, you know, there's all these potholes. He's almost like taken there, you know, going over these potholes and these bumpy sections of the road just to beat us to the beach. So that's all, that's all fair enough. If they want to do that and, you know, and hog the beach, fair enough. But they must have been about oh, 10 minutes ahead of us, maybe. And when I got to the beach, so for those that don't know the beach, basically you've got a field which leads down to a rocky section of the beach, then you go down to the sand. And these, well, these big boulders, not just rocks. Um, it can be tricky for a lot of people to negotiate to get over to get down to the beach. So when, when we got there, I just kind of did my talk to, to my customers about the do's and don'ts of the beach and what have you. And then there was someone there just kind of standing around, kind of looking at these rocks. It turned out that, they were, that this person was from the group that we'd met in the pub. But the main photographer, the, the, the workshop leader, was down there already on the beach with his tripod set up taking photos yet one of his customers had not even crossed the rocks yet so I helped them down to the beach you know so that we could get get down safely and I just thought this is not on so this is the classic one that you always hear that the workshop leader rushes ahead and gets the best spot and then everybody else who's paying for the workshop by the way has to basically settle for second and third and fourth best place because yeah, the best spots been taken up by the, uh, the the leader, but in this case here, he'd actually left one of his customers behind who couldn't get over the slippery rock. So you had to help one of his customers yeah. <laughs> onto the beach so that they could actually start taking photos, and he was none the wiser. I mean, it's unbelievable that that person who's paying money for that service and is just being completely ignored. Yeah, I mean, I've 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 heard other stories from our customers about you know being on workshops with other guides and as you say they're very much in it for themselves so you know pulling up to a location you know all of a sudden a rainbow's appeared or whatever and it's a great spot said workshop leader will jump out the car get the tripod set up get the shot and it's right okay now i'll help my customers to get the shot you just don't do that yeah no i mean we, we have a rule don't we on workshops that we don't take our own photos unless we're 100% confident that everybody is happy and is sorted out and yeah, um, you know, is is good to go, and only then, if the light's amazing, or you know, we'll we'll get our uh, cameras set up and start taking photos. Because most of the time, 
I mean, I don't know about you, Nick, but most of the time I'm just taking behind the scenes photos. I'm, so I'm taking yeah. photos of the customers taking photos because exactly. they're far more useful for me for promotional purposes than actually taking a, a shot. I've got, yeah. uh, you know, I've got thousands and thousands of, of landscape shots that I can use for promotion. I don't need another thousand sitting on a hard drive somewhere. So I, yeah, I, I almost never take photos when I'm leading workshops. But um, talking about workshop leaders in it for themselves, I'm uh, not going to mention any names here, but um, I had a customer a few years back who was a nurse uh, working for the NHS. And that's important because NHS nurses don't get paid a lot. So this was someone who wasn't particularly wealthy. And she had always wanted to go to Antarctica. And she'd saved up for many, many years in order to go on a, an Antarctic photography trip. And she went with this specific person who did a, I think it was a 15-day Antarctic trip. So the whole thing cost her £19,000. That's probably about a year or would have been a year's salary at the time because this was a few years ago. She got on the boat to find that there was 120 other workshop participants in this group and when they were on the boat sailing towards Antarctica they had a uh, an even first evening meal and the the workshop leader who's quite a well-known person which is why I'm not naming anyone here um, stood up and did a presentation about you know what to expect um, and explaining that they were going to go on do you know a couple of landings on the uh, ice every day um, and showing them what they can expect and then at the end he said um, okay so now just to explain the rules uh, when we're on the ice no one must come near me or disturb me because <laughs> I'm taking my own photos for a book. <laughs> and, oh, that's and, 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 wow! Yeah, and she she just sat there and she just thought, well, I've just I've saved up for years for this, and I've I've come here because I admire this guy's work, and I want to learn from him, and he's basically just told me that I can't go near him when we're in on, on location. So the only time she could approach him was on the boat when they weren't taking photos. But she said that was also impossible because he had, uh, there were so many people there, 120 people, but in that 120 people, there was like 10 kind of super fans, as she called them. And they just followed him everywhere he went. And, and it was almost like they were security around him and you just couldn't get in. So she said it was the biggest waste of money she's ever spent. And I, I, it makes me angry when I hear stories like that because there's been lots of other you know issues. I mean, there's another UK guy who, I mean, I, I could reel off endless amounts of stories about him, but the one I, I love best is when he posted a video on his own social media pages of him swinging on the lone tree in Rydal Water. <laughs> so in the Lake District, there's a, a tree which grows out of a lock, and it's not a big tree. Um, and this guy, he's not small. Um, you know, he's had one too many pies. And, um, and he got a video of himself swinging on the branch of one of these trees with a load of workshop customers around him. Oh, and somebody then commented, should you really be setting this example as a workshop leader? And then, of course, the video was suddenly taken down. But that's just a classic example of these, you know, clowns, and they are clowns, some of them, not all of them, but some of them, who are running workshops because there's no regulation. Anybody can do it. And that's, that's the problem. And there's plenty of good people out there, don't get me wrong. But for every good person, there's a bad person. And for the customer, it's incredibly difficult, especially when you're inexperienced with workshops, to look at one website and look at another website and know which one is the good one and which one the, one's the bad one. I mean, talking about websites, I was doing a Google image search 
for some of my own photos. It's when I get bored, which isn't often, but when I get bored, I'll put my own photos into Google search just to see if anybody else is using them. And one of my photos came up on another photographer's website and I thought, oh, this would be interesting. So I went to his website. He was advertising workshops. He's not local, by the way. He's based down in England. Um, and he was advertising a workshop on the Isle of Skye using my photos. <laughs> so for the customer, they're looking at his website and they're going, oh yeah, this guy looks like he knows what he's doing. You know, he's got some great photos. I, uh, he, he must know all the great locations on Sky. Um, and he looks like he knows what he's doing with, with the camera. So he'd be a good person to learn from. <laughs> so I had to get lawyers involved. And in the end, he ended up having to pay me quite a bit of money because I threatened to take him to court. I've never heard anyone be more apologetic in, in their life. But the fact is, an apology doesn't really stand for much when you've blatantly ripped off somebody else's photos yeah. and used it to advertise your own workshop. But that's the reason why we're discussing this. So could it be regulated and should it be regulated? I don't know how you would do it if you, if you did it, but it would be nice if there was some basic kind of standards that everybody had to meet. And what are you talking are you talking health and safety? Are you talking level of well, photog- photographic competence? What are you thinking? I don't think photographic competence is that important because if you end up going on a workshop with somebody who really doesn't know what they're doing, then you know your life's not in danger. But I know firsthand that it's impossible to get insurance to drive customers around in your own private vehicle unless, well, it's very complicated, too complicated to explain, but you have to have a specific vehicle type and cars are not within that vehicle type. So if you have a car, let's just say you've got a Volvo, a BMW, a Mercedes, whatever it is, and you're running workshops and you're transporting customers in your car, if you have a crash, you're not insured. Simple as that. And they're not insured, but they don't know that they're not insured. So for anyone doing that, you're breaking the law. Yeah. I mean, in Talking of insurance, so, I mean, I don't know what you call it, is it, I guess it's like company liability insurance. I believe Sky Photo Academy needs to have, um, well, all of us, what we do have, first aid qualifications. And I believe that's a stipulation of your insurance. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, so we every three years, we all have to go and do an uh, outdoor first aid course. And Ruth will remember her last one because she did it with me. And I basically failed to spot that she had a broken ankle. Yeah, it didn't inspire confidence, let me say that. I'm hoping in the real world you would have spotted it. But what percentage did I get on the uh, CPR, Ruth? Oh, you, yeah, I had to bring... Okay, I don't know, 99? I think I got no, half a percent less than you. 100, don't was it? Talk it? Yeah, I was 100%. <laughs> and I was the only one in the whole class who got 100%. I got 99 or something and you failed to acknowledge that. I remember that. If you're going to have a broken ankle, then you're probably better off with Nick. (laughs) But if you're going to have a heart attack, then I'm your man because I'm 100%. You can't get better at CPR than, than my technique. What was the music you were doing it to, Marcus? Staying alive? It was either Nelly the Elephant or Staying Alive. Yeah, I can't remember which one it was because depending on which course you go for, you get a different soundtrack, don't you? It did work very well. So for anybody listening to this who wants to go on a workshop and you're not familiar with the person running the workshops, you might want to just ask a couple of questions. Firstly, do you have first aid training? Secondly, am I insured to, to drive in your vehicle? Um, and if the answer to either of those is no, then I would steer clear and go with someone who's properly set up. Because if um, yeah, if you're not insured and something bad happens to you on, on the hillside, you know, you fall over. I mean, Nick, 
you know, this is radio, so we can't see, but you've actually got, you know, a battle scar on your face for saving someone's life last week. Well, yeah. <laughs> we could add that to the website. How many lives have you saved? If, you know, would you dive after me? This, this will make a difference. It's actually the second time that I've done it. <laughs> what, saved a life? Well, yeah, well, I don't know about saving a life, but the first time was at the Quran coming down from Breathless Point. Um, we were We were quite close to the path at this stage, but a lady did take a tumble and I basically rugby tackled her to stop her from going any further. And pretty much similar happened last week and I've got a bit of a nasty scar on my nose now. But the customer is perfectly fine and that's the main thing. You know, I've just got a... A minor thing happening. Minor cosmetic issue. <laughs> this yeah. is why he's on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't pretty before this, so I'm, you know, it doesn't make any difference. But yeah, it's you know, it's it's about being aware of uh, of all the dangers. And if you're a workshop leader and you're just running ahead and you're thinking of yourself and you're just uh, you know getting the shots for yourself and you're not paying attention to what your customers are doing, then there's no way that you're being aware of all the dangers that, that exist. So, you know, your story about helping one of the other workshop customers across the slippery rocks on the beach is a classic example of that. So do your research, which I think is what a lot of the, the people commenting on, on the posts were saying as well. It's up to you to actually research who you're going out with. Um, and if anyone's got any horror stories themselves that they haven't put in um, to the post, feel free to have a read, as I said, and add them in there. We'd love to hear some stories from you. Next month's big question, if you're joining us again in April, we're going to be asking, is modern photography too easy? And when we were discussing this question yesterday, I immediately launched into, well, I had my opinion, someone else had their opinion. So I think it's going to be another good one. Uh, so I'll put that up as well on our socials over the next few weeks and you can have your say in advance. Um, speaking of the podcast, I mentioned at the beginning... Uh, Marcus managed to offend some people, which, you know, it's part of daily life when you're with Marcus. But just a few of the comments we had about the first podcast that we did. Bad taste. Let's start with the negative one, shall we? This is our first ever comment on our first ever podcast. Bad taste. Making jokes about people who lose their lives is the lowest of the low. Very upsetting. Was expecting more from the experienced, he put in quotation mark, presenters shameful. Now, first of my first take on that was I was picking up on the, hang on, who said there was experienced presenters in the mix? Because I certainly <laughs> didn't. I think I'm the only one with presenting experience. The rest of you, or lots of you, have got um, radio broadcasting experience, shall we say. We didn't say presenting, so just picking you up on that. But anyway, Marcus, obviously never not polarising, but you you quite enjoyed that comment, Marcus. I did, and, and uh, you haven't said who it's from. It's from someone who calls themselves a uh, large format camera owner. Now, you can always spot a troll from a mile off because they never use their real name. They always use a you know a pseudonym somewhere. So, um, yeah, just a generic. Uh, there's, there's another one coming up uh, a bit later called Through the Loop. It could be the same guy because they're clearly both film shooters. But anyway, uh, large format camera owner. Um, I should actually learn how to spell the word lose because you spelt loose. So <laughs> Marcus. go back to school. Marcus. But that was balanced out with a second comment that came in a day later uh, from Captain KTM. Fan bloody tastic. At last, honest expert opinion for us photographers really enjoyed it. Yeah, and we should say the first one was in relation to the selfies, which, uh, like I say, is going to probably carry on being a running theme in the podcast. But yeah, those were some of the comments on our first ever podcast YouTube show. We had lots of positive comments, which is always really nice to hear. But we did have the odd uh, person not impressed, Billy. 
Billy Tetlow. He says, I was looking forward to the return of the programme. This was in January. Uh, I was disappointed by the fact that the first 20 minutes was taken up by a predictable and amateurish storyline that wasted time as far as photography was concerned. I want to watch the gang concentrating on photography, not on them aspiring to become fourth-rate comedy actors and failing. Which was, again, nice to read on the first one we did back. I got to say that my, my brother said we were third rate, so I felt quite good about that. He watched it. He watched it last night. If we failed to be fourth rate comedy actors, that, does that mean we're first rate or maybe second rate? Because I'll go for that. I'll take I'll take third rate, honestly. <laughs> yep. Third rate is Absolutely. fine. Um, Dominic Lester said, change the poo's name. This is in relation to our, our supporters, our photography online official supporters, who we are calling our poo's. Change the poo's name. It just smacks of disrespect. If you change it, I'll join. So uh, we, we'll, we won't we'll, be changing we'll it, Dominic. You, Dominic. So yeah, we're, yeah we're, you can save your three pound ninety nine yeah. because uh, uh, we quite like the name, and lots of other people do as well. And if you can't see the humour in it, then yeah, I don't know, maybe go and take some happy pills or something. Well, we've got several hundred who do. I think we love our poos. I, I guess the thing is, you know, you just can't please everyone, can you? I think we're pleasing the wide or the greater audience, and then there's going to be the small handful of people that either just want to. Be a keyboard warrior or just don't get it, basically. Yeah, or perhaps just having having a bad day. There's always a few of them out there. Um, someone who calls themselves 496 asks... Oh, <laughs> I didn't actually read what I was going to say. How many coats do you have, Ruth? Okay, well, um, <laughs> not enough, apparently, according to Marcus, every time I go out. So, do you not have something that's not pink? or purple, or whatever. So Marcus is going to give me a monthly stipend to get an extra ones. You're like one of those newsreaders that every single day you see them, the news anchor sitting there and they've always got a different you know, sweater on or dress on or whatever. And you just think, how... How big must their wardrobe be? <laughs> I seem to recall like the, the third, second or third show we did and I came into your house probably wearing a purple jacket and you said, uh, you know, don't take this the wrong way, but do you have any jackets that aren't purple? And I remember standing there going, <laughs> jackets are expensive. Does he think I'm made of money? And I, uh, so from then on, I was like, I need to have something different every, every single month. They are tax deductible, though. <laughs> are they? If anybody out there wants to sponsor my jackets, uh, feel free. And I'll promise I will wear them every month. Anyway, uh, last one we've got here. You mentioned it yourself, Marcus, from Through the Loop. He was not impressed either. This was our last YouTube show. He says, who goes to two national parks and shoots crap like that? Is that all you can come up with among mountains and epic scenery? Some crap woods and a dull picture of a house? Laughing emoji. Then he moves on to the lighthouse shoot. He says, why the hell was he shooting on a, at F8 on an LF lens is a mystery. They don't operate at their best at that aperture. And his tripod head was the wrong way around. LOL. So another bad day. <laughs> Yeah, we can answer all of that, though, because, um, well, obviously, the National Parks Challenge, the whole point of it is that we've literally got an hour or two at the most in each park before we have to get on the road and go to the next park. And that's the whole point of it. We don't have time to, to be climbing up mountains. So we've got no control over the weather. We have to take whatever conditions we're given and work with what we've got. But with regards to why I was shooting at F8, um, if he knew anything about photography, then he would have seen that obviously I'm photographing a moving subject, i.e. the waves smashing against a rock, and I'm shooting in very high winds. So obviously my exposure time is key there. And if my memory serves me correctly, that was 1 60th of a second. Now, I don't want to go any lower than 1 60th because A, I'm going to get blurry image because of the wind, and also my waves aren't going to be sharp. 
So if he wants to go down and shoot at f22, because I can't change the ISO, I'm using film for goodness sake. Um, if he wants to go and shoot at f22 at half a second, good luck. See how sharp your photo is. <laughs> anyway, that was some of the feedback we had about uh, the podcast and the show. Feel free to keep sending it in. Uh, we do love to hear it. Anyway, we're going to move on to our next feature. What is the point? What's the point? Okay, so this month we are talking long exposure noise reduction in camera. Long exposure noise reduction, I should say. So first of all, Nick, for people that are not actually familiar with this, what exactly is it? Uh, well, as, as it, it says on the tin, it's long exposure noise reduction. But it's so when you do long exposures, um, you can get forms of noise, um, hot pixels, etc. showing up on your image. Now, what in-camera long exposure noise reduction does, it takes two photographs. So the first photo is basically of the scene that you're capturing. Well, the second one, it's actually known as a dark frame because the camera shutter is actually closed during the exposure. Now, what this does, this dark frame exposure contains only the image noise and the hot pixels. So then the camera automatically subtracts these from the first image, hence getting rid of noise and hot pixels. But it normally starts, so I actually tested this on my Canon R5 and it kicks in from a one second long exposure. So you take a one second long exposure, you've got to wait another second for it to do it again because it's always the same length. But if say you're shooting a 30 second exposure, you've got to wait another 30 seconds for it to do the dark frame. I mean, I've shot exposures five, six minutes long. I don't want to be waiting another five or six minutes for it to do this. I may as well do it after the fact in the computer. Yeah, well, that's the key thing, is that can you achieve everything that long exposure noise reduction does in camera in post-production? Because if you don't use a polarizer at the time of capture, you can't replicate that in the post-production stage because the image has already been taken without polarization. You can't polarize an image once it's been taken. So can you achieve the same or similar result in post-production to what the camera would do in by itself? I would say probably better because in the likes of Lightroom and other software out there that has the noise reduction in, you know, inbuilt into it, you've got more fine control over it. With it in camera, you've got, I believe it's just either on or off or automatic. So if the camera you know, senses you're doing like a one second of long exposure, it'll just automatically do it. Whereas in computer, you know, you've got maybe three or four different functions to go with it. So you've got more control over doing it. Yeah. So it's like being in manual exposure mode, for instance, you know, you've got a more control over it. Now, in terms of the hot pixels, I'm not 100% sure. I couldn't find that out. But you've got, you know, dust spot removal. I mean, I've seen hot pixels in some of my long exposures. There's generally not that many. So this is happens when your sense, as your sensor gets hot. So we're talking from longer exposures or the length of time that you've been shooting for consistently, the sensor gets hot. So you'll just get these kind of coloured, sometimes blue, I think green, very fine pixels showing up. Um, but from my experience, there's never been that many that's, you know, that doesn't take too long just to remove in either Photoshop or Lightroom. Every time I speak to somebody who, you know, specialises in long exposures, and the most recent example would have been Stephen Elliott down uh, in the Peak District when we did the light painting in the in the cave. Yeah. Um, yeah, he says, just turn it off. Um, when you speak to people who specialise in astrophotography, they'll tell you to turn it off. So 
if you get an expert in any of these long exposure you know, areas, they all tell you to turn it off. We're telling you to turn it off. It just seems that it's completely pointless. Yeah. So just turn it off, basically, because I, I, I can recall one particularly frustrating photo shoot. Um, it was in Monument Valley in Utah, and we were there doing some astrophotography, and I was trying to light the scene um, just to throw some light on the foreground sand ripples, and they were shooting like the totem pole, which is a big, thin rock that sticks up into the horizon with the Milky Way arcing over it. But you don't want the foreground to be pure black. So I was standing way off to the side with a torch just to... Sh- to kind of shine a little bit of light at a low angle across the sand, just so it picks out all the ripples of the sand, just subtly. And because I'm so far away, I can't see the results that people are getting on their camera. So I'm relying on their feedback to say it's too bright or it's too dark. And they're doing 30 second exposures and I'm counting in my head so because I'm painting the light. So I know when the exposure's up and I say, right, give me some feedback. And they go, hang on a minute, I've got to wait another 30 seconds because got long exposure noise reduction on. And the twilight is kind of creeping across the horizon and we're losing, <laughs> literally, minute by minute, you're losing the opportunity to get this shot of the Milky Way because the ambient light levels are coming up ahead of the sunrise. And so by having long exposure noise reduction on, you're reducing the amount of photos you can take by half. And so when you're doing this trial and error approach, which we were here, because I need, you know, we can't just get it right first time. I, I'm not a magician. <laughs> I, need, I need to somebody to just tell me what the intensity of, of the light should be. And so trial and error process, we need to get it done as quickly as possible. And we're just waiting around for all these cameras to do something which is completely pointless. So the answer of Uh, at least from us, is just turn it off and pretend it doesn't exist. So no point to that. Well, let's move on to some other things which may or may not be a point for. Does the world really need this? So this is the section of the show where we look at gear, new releases, things about to be released, uh, concepts of releases, and we've got quite a few good ones today. Starting off, uh, Nick, you have got a new camera. Which one is it? Yeah, it's the OM Systems OM1 Mark II. Now, the feature that this camera has, which sounds really good on paper, is live GND or live graduated neutral density. It looks really cool. Like I say, on paper, you can choose between soft, medium and hard gradations and up to three stops. I think it's one to three stops. And you've got full control over exactly where it is in the frame. I thought it would be like a 50-50 thing and you just turned it on and it would just basically cover the top half of the image but it doesn't. You can actually use the touch screen on the back, you can angle it, you can drag it down to exactly where you want it. And it sounds really good. However, you can't use the live ND and the live GND together. So if you want to do a long exposure where you need to use a grad, then you'll actually have to put a filter in front of your camera. But it's still amazing technology when you think about it. Oh yeah. And it's one of those things that I think, um, I'm surprised that all the other manufacturers haven't followed suit because I'm not talking about the the neutral density graduated ones because obviously that's brand new on this camera. But the just the neutral density uh, filters in camera, that's something that's been out for, what, three years, I think it is, must be on Olympus? Yeah, at least, yeah. Um, and normally when one manufacturer comes out with something that's you know, revolutionary like that, the others are hot on the hills. So they've either got a patent for it and the others can't do it or they just can't be bothered. I don't know. But um, it's uh, yeah, when I heard that they were doing the, the graduated filters, I mean, I haven't used it, so I don't know how effective it is. But um, I mean, if it's effective 
and, and this is the big thing, and if the other manufacturers jump on board and start doing it as well, then it's not good for filter companies, that, because it just means that nobody's got any real reason to buy filters, unless you shoot film. I knew that was coming. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> so is there a point but, to it, do you reckon? Oh, for sure. Yeah, but because it's reducing the amount of uh, gear that you, A, need to buy, so it saves you money, and B, it, that you have to carry around. Um, so, yes, there's a point to it, but this all comes back, you know, you've already uh, said what the big question is for next month's show, mm. is modern digital photography too easy? This is another example. It's just it's every single camera that's released is just making the job easier and easier and easier, and it gets to a point where you, you just, you know, without wanting to preempt the conversation for next show, it gets to a point where you just go, where's where's the skill involved anymore because the camera's making all the decisions but anyway we'll have that conversation next so you you could argue it's making it more complicated because you're going to fiddle around with the back of your camera again rather than just pulling out something and putting it on the front of it but anyway does the world need it yes i think is the consensus it's that's just the world moving forward yeah, yeah, because it can only develop more. Um, the next thing, does the world really need this? This is one I found. It's a fancy, I, I call it a fancy lens cap. I just realised it's not actually a lens cap, but it's a body cap uh, for cameras. Obviously, cameras when you buy a body come with a cap. Uh, same for lenses. This is a third-party cap, which is called the Defender. But it's basically a robust body cap, which besides uh, covering the important stuff on your camera, also comes with compartments to hide stuff. So you could hide a, an Apple AirTag in there, which, you know, fair dues, um, or you can put a memory card in there. So it comes with inserts, like two or three different inserts. One will hold SD cards, one will hold CF cards, and one will hold Apple AirTags. You get the combination of those. It's made for most of the major camera brand bodies. So is there a point to that? Does the world need it? I don't know, because my first instinct was that's the one thing you lose most often is a, is a cap. Yeah, but... If you've got other stuff in it as well. Well, I mean, as, as, as you said, it's not the lens cap, it's a body cap. How many people walk around with the body cap on the camera? You've normally got a lens attached to it. So when your camera's in the bag, it'll most likely have a lens attached to it. Your, the body cap will just be in your house somewhere. There's a lot of perfectionists out there who probably take all their lenses off and put their bag together with everything separated and, I don't know, uh, yeah, Nick's not up for it. If you've got a mirrorless camera, the last thing you want to be doing is changing lenses any more than is necessary yeah. because every time you do that, you're going to get dust and what have you. So if you're one of those people who takes the lens off to put your camera in your bag, please stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so does the world really need it? Probably not, but it does look quite cool. And I reckon we might see Harry walking around with one because it's, yeah, it looks a bit fancy. Equipment wraps. Marcus, this is another one that, well, we found this one and you actually said you had something similar, but this is a brand new item from Three-Legged Thing. Tell us about it. Well, from what I can gather, it's uh, just a, a kind of like a sheet, a, a blanket, let's call it a blanket, that with some Velcro on it that you can wrap around anything. So camera body, a lens, whatever you want. Um, and it just acts as a, a, another layer of protection. But if you've got a camera bag, which has got all the compartmental padded bits in it anyway, I don't understand what this does because it's really just an unnecessary belt and braces approach. I mean, 
what a three-legged thing going to come out with next, a bag to put your bag in. Well, I thought it was quite cool, <laughs> to be honest, because it's it's not like just strips of Velcro. It's entirely sealable in on itself. It's waterproof. It's padded. So if you've got, a, say, a lens in it and you take it out and you lay it on the grass because you're about to change it, you know, you see everyone, you, you're balancing the body on the top of one of your camera inserts in your bag, and you're balancing the lens at another funky angle. You know, if you could put it on the ground, that's not a bad thing. I remember saying about my camera bag in Venice, if only this camera bag had insert that kind of came out and I could lay it on the ground and use it to put things on while I was doing stuff. I always thought that you were doing Tai Chi when you were doing those strange <laughs> balancing moves. You said you had something similar when I first showed you this. Well, okay, no, so, okay. Uh -huh, so, here we go now. Right. Yeah. For large format lenses, okay, they're a very strange shape and there's lots of very fragile bits that sort of stick out from them. So you've got lots of little levers and shutters and everything. So there's a reason to have them for large format lenses. Um, but for a normal lens, as in you know a digital camera lens, um, there's nothing that sticks out of them. They don't need any extra protection once you've got them in a proper padded bag. So it just seems to me that it's just excess yeah, I mean, gadgetry that you don't need. They're not marketed directly for lenses. They're, the whole idea of them is you can put them on anything, absolutely anything. And that's, I guess, the appeal of them. You can wrap them around absolutely anything and you know it's safe and it's dry and all the rest of it. So Harry could use one for his ego. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, I've, I've actually been really quiet here because I do actually have something similar to this myself. I like them. I would, I would not mind one or two of those. I'm sure people could find a use for what them. What do you use it for, Nick? Well, I very rarely use it, to be Nick. honest Just with you. Just own it. Come on. So the one that I have, it's like a, a square piece of fabric, padded fabric with four bits of Velcro. So it's not fully waterproof and anything. But when I bought a new lens... Um, which is quite an expensive lens. I bought it so that if it's not in the padded compartment within my bag, if it's in an unprotected area, then I would have this thing, this wrap around it to treat it like a baby in the in the bag. Okay, but but what so. situation would it not be in the bag? That's the that's the bit I don't get. Well, no, not in, not in the main compartment. It's quite a bulky lens. So if I had other lenses already, you know, if all the compartments were taken up and I wanted to put it outside of my main internal camera unit as they're called right gotcha so it was in a non-padded part of the bag right. because you can get you can get some like a, a specific padded lens pouch yeah that was strapped to the side of a bag so that's that's basically the same this is a different way of solving the same problem yeah but, but being a scotsman this was actually cheaper Right. Okay. It does look like it's got many interesting uses, actually. So, again, we'll put links to these in the show notes. And if you've got an opinion on them, or if you've got them, and um, you find good ways of using them, uh, do let us know. Next thing, a bit more up your street, possibly, Marcus. What's coming up next from... We've got a new release. Uh, yep. So Sigma have recently announced a couple of exciting new lenses. So one of them is a 500mm f5.6 lens. And what's good about it is that it's the same size and weight as a 70 to 200. Ooh. So we're talking about a prime 500 millimeter lens. Now, Sigma already have a 500 millimeter F4 lens, and that is the kind of size that you would envisage a 500 millimeter lens being. And when you see the two side by side, the, the, the new F5.6 version is half the length and it's half the, the girth. So when you halve it in both dimensions, it's a quarter of the size and therefore about a quarter of the weight. But it comes in at 1,370 grams, 1 1.3 
kilos. Uh, I don't know what that is in pounds. So for anybody listening in America, sorry about that, but you'll have to do the conversion yourself. But I, I looked it up and Sigma's 70 to 200, uh, the F2.8 zoom is only 30 grams lighter than that. So that's, that's not, I mean, if you held one in one hand and one in the other hand, that's not enough to really notice which one would be heavier. Um, very similar in size. So uh, it's not a cheap lens. It's um, £2,779. But for a 500mm prime lens, that that is cheap in comparison to what else is on the market. But um, I think the main selling point um, with this is the, the size and the weight. Because, I mean, you were just talking about that lens that you, it was quite bulky, Nick, that yeah. you wanted to protect and um, wouldn't go any bad. This this lens is, I mean, you, well, you've got a 70 to 200, haven't you? I have. Yeah, I've got a 2.8 and it's... Right, okay. So this this will be the, roughly the same size and the same weight. And it's a 500 millimeter prime yeah. lens. What what mounts are they doing it for? I mean, don't please tell me they're doing it for Canon. So at the moment, they're releasing it in the Sony E-mount and the L-mount, which is for Panasonic, Leica and Sigma, of course. So um, there's no RF there at the moment, Nick, yeah. for obvious reasons. But um, I've been told that there is news coming. But I don't know whether it's good or bad <laughs> in, in terms of the RF. Keeping my fingers crossed. The other lens that they're also announcing, you'll like this in a minute, a 15mm fisheye f1.4. Okay. Now, the, the claim is that this is the fastest fisheye, full-frame fisheye lens in the world, which it probably is because I don't know of another f1.4 uh, fisheye lens. But guess what the weight is? Bearing in mind, the 500 millimeter is 1,370 grams. Two kilograms. No, it's 1,360 grams. So it's 10 grams difference. Oh, lighter. With 10 grams. I mean, it's the same weight. So they've just bought out a fisheye lens, a 15 millimeter fisheye lens, which is the same weight as a 500 millimeter prime lens. Um, this is also available in the Sony E mount and the L mount. Um, the fisheye is an art lens, so it belongs to their kind of like their prime series of lenses. The the 500 millimeter is the part of the sport range. Um, have you ever owned a fisheye lens, Nick? I haven't, no. And I th I thought that they would have to be wider than 15 mil. I mean, here comes my ignorance here. I thought fisheye lenses were like eight millimeter. So how does a 15 mil work? So 15 millimeter, because this is a this is a um, a full frame. Uh, it gives a full frame image. So some fisheye lenses they give a round image. Yep. And to get a round image, you obviously have to zoom out even further. Okay. So when you see a fisheye lens of say eight millimeters, which I think Canon do one, you end up with a round image, which is about as useful as a third eyebrow, as far as I'm concerned. Because how can you frame that on the wall? Yeah. Um, you can't. Be, I mean, there's no, what can you do with a round image? Um, so to get a full frame uh, fisheye lens, then you need to go to 14, 15, 16 millimeters, some, somewhere in that, in that ballpark. And that's still gonna give you 180 degrees of coverage from corner to corner, not from side to side, but from so top right corner to bottom left corner is 180 degrees of, of um, you know, view. Um, whereas an eight millimeter circular lens will give you 180 degrees round the entire circle. So that's, oh, okay. th that, that's the difference here. So, I mean, uh, have you ever used that Canon fisheye zoom lens? No. So they, they've got a zoom lens, a fisheye zoom lens, which goes from eight millimeters, I think to 16 millimeters, maybe it's 15. But at eight millimeters, you get a, a 
perfectly circular image. And as you zoom in, that circular image gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you get to the long end of the zoom when it fills the whole frame. But what's the point of a zoom? Because you can't use it between those two points because if you use it at say 11 millimeters, you've just got dark corners where yeah. the, the circle isn't big enough. So you just get this, this vignette and it's not just a subtle vignette, it's completely black. And so they'd be better off to have a switch on the side of the lens. It's either circular or it's full frame because you can't, can you explain one situation where you can use that lens in the middle of its zoom range? No. Right, there we go. So we've sorted that one out. But anyway, so a, a, a full a full frame fisheye is far more useful than a circular fisheye lens, and that's what this is. So if you want to tote around a rather heavy um, and very novel lens in your bag, then um, if you've got eighteen hundred and fifty nine pounds to spend in a couple of weeks' time, you'll be able to go out and buy the new fifty uh, millimeter. Sigma fisheye art lens f 1.4 and you can wrap it in your uh, special <laughs> wrap yeah so to answer the question by the way does the world really need this for the 500 millimeter absolutely yes because I mean if Harry was here I think he a, a, yeah. a, a little bit of wee wee might have come out when when I told him about <laughs> that because that's gonna that's gonna revolutionize his his life because he can have walk around with a lens that's going to give him enough reach to photograph otters and eagles but he's not going to have to carry any weight um so yes is the answer to the 500 millimeter the world does really need it and it's fantastic that sigma have, have bought that out uh with regards to the 50 millimeter fisheye i mean fisheyes have been around for a long time why do you need an f1.4 fisheye i mean you, you're not going to be able to get a shallow depth of field on it anyway so i guess if you're into astrophotography and you don't mind all the you know the distortion because fish eyes they distort any straight line so you're going to get a big curve of the horizon um and yeah which isn't ideal so if you don't mind that i suppose it's a good astro lens but other than that it's probably pretty limited in its use so I would say the world doesn't really need the fisheye lens, but um, one out of two ain't bad. So keep going, Sigma. <laughs> well, one final lens that's being released uh, is uh, a Canon lens. Nick, this will excite you. This is an RF lens. Tell us about it. Yeah, so this is a bit of a mouthful. It's the Canon RF 24-105mm f 2.8L I-S-U-S-M-Z. This brings me back to last month's show with the <laughs> most stupid name for any product. Yep, it's pretty close. Canon are trying to claim the number one spot on that, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, yeah, the I-S is image stabilisation. U-S-M is the ultrasonic motor, I think it is, which is with the focus in. And the Z does have a relevance. The Z is to do with zoom. So this is the first 24 to 105, which is a, cons well, which is a 2.8 aperture, widest aperture. Normally they're f4 or probably maybe like 5.6. So, I mean, that's a great thing for a lot of people, not necessarily for landscape photographers. I mean, why would you need a 2.8 aperture for landscape photographers? But for wedding photographers, this is a great lens. And I say they're touting it also at some photographers with this Z thing, which I'll get to in a minute. Now, the parfocal performance, do you know what that is, Marcus? I had no idea. I had to Google it. Okay, it's got nothing to do with golf, no? No, no, unfortunately not. It's okay. A parfocal lens is a lens that stays in focus when magnification or focal length is changed. So with a zoom lens, as you know, as you zoom in, zoom out, you have to refocus. Yeah. But this, for, I mean, we're not talking, you know, 100% accurate, I don't think. 
but it stays in pretty much in focus all the time. <laughs> I, I, lo- I love that. It's not 100% accurate, but it's pretty good. So you don't need to check it, honest. <laughs> well, no, it, it may be with this lens, but this is just from my Googling. One, one of the things it said was, you know, it may not be all, you know, 100% accurate, but it may be with this lens. You know, I don't know when this article that I read was published. Now, the Z part is to do with this. You get an optional power zoom, which you can attach to the lens. Now, the lens itself is just under three and a half grand, so £3,500, compared to 1400 for the F4 version. And this extra power zoom adapter is £1,149. I think it was £49. So do we need this? I, I think we do. I mean, a lot of people, this will benefit a lot of people, like I say, wedding photographers. Um, so if you pair this with 70 to 200 millimetre 2.8 and you've got you know, a very good focal range for a wedding photographer. If it was a more comparable price to the F4 version, you know, it'd be a much more popular lens. But I don't think many people are going to be able to justify the difference in price just for one stop. Of, of aperture well it's a status thing as well for some people i think isn't it you know hey look what i've got but we won't go there the kind of guy who goes down to a camera club with his a camera around his neck <laughs> with his longest lens like swinging you're gonna have fun at the photography show soon marcus aren't you yeah <laughs> we see a, we see a lot there right we'll stick these up in the show notes again along with some of the news stories that we did earlier on uh, feel free to have your say on those but that's about it for our march podcast coming up on the next photography online show our main youtube show uh, we're going to be doing day three of the national parks challenge which is going to be fun best focal lengths for portraiture we haven't done much um, around that kind of topic a lot recently so that's going to be a good one snowdonia is that you nick are you in snowdonia and um, yes i am sorry yes <laughs> uh, i would like to just caveat that though ruth we haven't actually started editing that feature yet so uh we're, we're, it's scheduled but okay. we might we, we want to reserve the right to change it without notice uh, I may have to make another trip to Snowdonia and refilm it. No arguments at all, think, from Nick on that one. Mastering metering as well in analogue affairs, specifically uh, analogue metering. So that's all coming up, theoretically, uh, on our next YouTube show, which is going to be live on the 7th of April. So very much looking forward to that. Anyway, we're away. Thank you so much, guys, Nick and Marcus, uh, for joining us. Nick, Nick's first show. He'll be back for a second, I think. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> you, well, yeah, you've, you've done pretty good. So thank you so so much for joining us until next time take good care but most of all take good photos the photography online podcast 